At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Protection Money edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. It's been an interesting week. I'm Felix Salmon Infusion. We have the core team here, Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman. Hello. And hey, everyone. We are going to talk about, well, I don't know if it's, we're going to talk about whether there has been a coup in Zimbabwe. <laughs> it, um, there, there, it, there's, there's been a coup. <laughs> it's a coup. It, Jordan, Jordan is... <laughs> Is Team Coup. When you have someone in a beret and fatigues reading you news on your television, it's a it's coup. A coup. <laughs> it might be a coup if. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's been a while since we had a good old-fashioned military coup. So we get to, you know, it's not every day that you get to turn on your weekly podcast and listen to people massacring the pronunciation of the word hunter. Wait, but we're going to try. Oh, wouldn't it be amazing, though, if instead of taking over like the TV stations, they took over like the podcast stations for a coup? <laughs> <laughs> like, the banter is so much different. It's, <laughs> it's a much more relaxed coup. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Michael Barbaro, and this is military law. <laughs> Anyway, um, but we are we are we will get to the coups and the and the and the public control of the media. We will also get to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the only leader of which um, is no longer the leader of, and we're going to talk about whether that institution. Um, but first, we need to talk because. Obviously, this is my podcast and I get to talk about this. We need to talk about Salvatore Mundi, the um, $450 million alleged Leonardo painting. It's from, from contemporary artist Leonardo da Vinci. So, okay, the, this is the first. I mean, I'm going to assume that y'all listening to this show have more or less got the background here. I, I wouldn't assume that. No, I think you got, you got to give the background here. There's, okay. I mean, well, the background goes back 500 years, so we, we can't, we can't do too much of a Charles the first. However, <laughs> but, um, there, there was an art auction recently. Okay. So the news of the week, like let's not even go back to the news of 2013 and 2014, but the news of the week was that it was the big contemporary art sale at Christie's. And like all contemporary art sales, it had a 500-year-old Leonardo painting in it. <laughs> and um, although the joke was that the reason that the Leonardo was in the contemporary art sale was because 90% of it had been painting it, painted in the past 50 years um, because it was heavily restored. And it was heavily restored in a kind of what you might call 
oligarch-friendly manner. Oh, my God. The thing really looks like a comic book panel. It's like really like it looks like someone just popped the contrast on the whole Mm. thing on an Instagram filter or something. Well, that's because you were looking at the pictures of the painting installed in Christie's where they had like an eight gazillion watt spotlight trained on it and complete darkness everywhere else. So it had oligarch-friendly lighting as well. It had oligarch-friendly light. They really did pull out all of the sort of Thomas Kincaid stops in, in the <laughs> in the exhibition of this painting. Um, There's a charming house in the background. <laughs> a lighthouse. If, if, if you paid a little bit extra, then the conservator would add a few more little white dots in the... I mean, Some I'm happy not, little trees. <laughs> I'm not actually joking. There's this... Um, there's this... Uh, Sphere, some kind of an orb in yes. the bottom right-hand corner. So, Amidst the, the mundi, it's kind, of, it's it's uh, it's reminiscent of the Saudi Arabia orb. <laughs> that yes, it's the power orb, yes. the oligarch orb. Yes. Um, it all makes sense now. There's, there's a little orb in the corner, and um, and no one quite knows why this orb is there. Um, but during the extensive repainting slash restoration process. The orb acquired a bunch of little white dots, which I swear to God are indistinguishable from the Thomas Kincaid little white dots. Um, But the interesting thing about the orb is that um, Leonardo was, as we all know, a great scientist, and he was very interested in optics, and he was really ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, the early Renaissance move from sort of flat Byzantine... um, painting and, and, and art to something much more sophisticated and three-dimensional and, you know, with movement and you go to the Last Supper and you can see all of these different figures yeah. moving mm-hmm. in space in a way that no one had ever right. done really before Leonardo. And so then, you know, he starts doing this thing where he shows off, like, I get to show what a glass sphere looks like in paint, which is... In, incredibly difficult thing to paint and so it's like a little bit of virtuoso painting except for he got it completely wrong yeah like if as, as if you happen to have a glass sphere lying around in front of you as you're listening to this podcast you can look at the glass sphere and you will see that if you look at the glass sphere everything which you see in the glass sphere is upside down it's a standard feature of spherical lenses and if you look through the glass sphere in the leonardo painting Nothing is upside down. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I was reading that, it, that that's the critics of this painting have suggested that maybe that part of it wasn't even painted by Leonardo because there actually there were like people in you know Renaissance Italy who specialized in adding those kinds of features to paintings at that point. And so people think maybe Leonardo didn't even do that part. Maybe well, maybe Leonardo it didn't do any, any of, of it. it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So here's the thing I've been a little bit confused by. It seems like there was a huge... Um, divide between critics who are like this painting has been either restored to the point where almost none of it is done by Leonardo um, and maybe none of it. And then the quote experts, the dealers and old masters and some academics who said passages of it were painted by Leonardo. There, his hand is present somewhere underneath all the restorations. There, there was like a little bit of the left hand and maybe some of the ringlets. Yeah, and so, and I mean, like to give you a sense, like they they have how extensively this thing was redone. At points, there was like a mus- there was a beard on this painting, and you can see it from like X rays. Then the beard disappears when it got repainted. I mean, there are all kinds. It's of not just X rays. There's a 
1904 black and white oh, photograph yes, that's, that's of right. this photograph of this painting, right. which that's is almost idea. unrecognizable yeah, compared he, to. He looks a lot like a lot more sad and stoned in the black and white photo. But so like, and that so what, and that alone was 400 years after it was painted, and who knows what happened between 1500 and 1900. So where. Why does anyone think Leonardo was at all involved? I know, I know, Walter Isaacson is convinced of it. Is, uh, convinced of this? Which, well, like, I mean, if I've, Walter Isaacson I, I, is yeah, convinced because he did he did a Leonardo biography recently, and that kind of makes me skeptical. Because I'm like, oh, great! Like the dilettante who just likes to write about smart men, like thinks that this is another masterpiece that makes his smart man look Le- smarter. Le- Walter like that. Isaacson did not say that it was a masterpiece. Okay, he just says it's. He just he, is convinced. He said, it's, he said it's a Leonardo. And what you need to understand when you talk about attribution when it comes to old masters is that over the course of 500 years thing you know shit happens yeah um especially if as in this case you're talking about a painting on a panel on a wooden panel if like canvas is it's more forgiving to the centuries like it you know if you wiggle it around a lot if it gets a bit damp or whatever like it still basically stays canvas in the way that wood can crack and warp and break and shatter and burn and do all of like nasty stuff so leonardo loved painting on wood for reasons i don't understand and so the mona lisa is painted on wood as well like it's not it's not uncommon for him to have painted on wood but it does make preservation much more difficult and so what happens over the centuries is that you have a pretty picture and over the centuries the degree to which people care about which mark was physically made by leonardo and which mark was physically made by someone else kind of rises and falls and sometimes people care sometimes people don't and during the periods when people don't care so much i don't know say the mid 18th century or something like that you know you might well get quite a lot of quite aggressive cleaning um and and touch-ups and that kind of and every single time anyone touches this painting something gets lost and needs to get replaced and so over the years it you basically wind up with um theseus's ship if you remember from your yeah every piece of it has been replaced as mm-hmm. it's still the original ship right and so the way that attribution works when it comes to old masters is not a kind of percentage thing where they where they ask like what percentage of the marks on this painting were actually made by leonardo da vinci and much more a kind of theseus's ship thing where they say like can we draw a continuous contiguous line from leonardo's studio straight to the present day it's like you're almost at that point. It feels like you're almost owning a religious relic, right? right. Like but you're not I, you're not owning a painting so much as as a, something that the man touched. And I think to a certain extent, that's exactly what they're selling. I mean, yeah. I, I think if you're looking at why Christie's is, you know, promoting the piece in this way, it's for this very reason. It's it's because ultimately, does it really matter to them when they're selling it? I mean, yes, it does to a certain extent. It, it absolutely. I mean, it matters. does. It does. But I mean. I mean, they promoted it as the male Mona Lisa. Of course they did. But that's what I mean. It's like they're promoting it in that way. But when you go back to the idea of why there's this probably split between academics and those who are actually involved in selling the piece, well, obviously, because... Well, no, I mean, it's it's not... No, I mean, that's actually not what Jordan was saying. No, no, no. What Jordan was saying was that the academics were saying, yeah, it's a genuine Mona Lisa. And then you have people like Jerry Saltz in New York Magazine saying... I'm sorry, but like, there's nothing Leonardo-ish about this. This this is far from being a masterpiece. And those two things 
don't necessarily contradict each other. Right. The, the contradiction right. yeah. is then between someone like Jerry Saltz, who's like, this is a flat, or Jason Frago at Bloomberg, saying like, there is zero artistic merit to this painting. It's a boring 16th century sort of like unoriginal Jesus painting of which there are hundreds of thousands probably lying around somewhere. So the difference is between people like Jason Farrago and Jerry Saltz on the one hand saying this is a bad painting and Christie's on the other hand saying this is Mm -hmm. a masterpiece. And the academics, while they will agree with Christie's that it is a Leonardo, will not necessarily agree with Christie's that it is a masterpiece. So this is now the most expensive painting ever sold? 450 yes, million? Yes, by, by, by far. So, I, so my guess, you and I were kind of wagering, had a friendly wager on this, what it would actually sell for. And I, I thought it would it'd be at a discount because there were so many articles floating around saying this is not really Leonardo, it's trash. I figured that had to bring down its value. Obviously, I was completely wrong. And the assumption is they sold it essentially to some Asian old, or like some Asian billionaire or something along those uh, lines. Wait, uh, wait, who's uh, making that assumption? Uh, it seems like a lot of the coverage said they were marketing it like in Hong Kong. That was like the target. No, no, no. I mean, that's okay. That, again, that, you need to, yeah. you, you can't jump to conclusions here. Just because that's where you, it was being marketed you, doesn't mean they were. They, they did a big world tour of this thing. It okay. went around every single billionaire in the world. I mean, there's very few individuals on planet Earth who have the ability and willingness to drop $450 million on a painting. And if you are selling that painting, it is entirely possible to show it in person to every single one of those people. (laughs) And they live around the world. And so you just like shop, you know, put it in your hand baggage and move it around the world and show it to those people because that's basically how you get them to buy it. But I think it does go to maybe just this idea of regardless of who bought it or where they're from, like what exactly are they buying? And, And this comes back to the question of why it was in the contemporary sale rather than in the old master sale because the old master's universe is still dominated to quite a large degree by questions of connoisseurship and quality. Yeah. And the contemporary market is not so much. In the contemporary market, it is dominated not by the cognoscenti, but rather by the collectors. And in order to be a collector, you don't need to know anything about art. In order to buy a $450 million Leonardo, you don't need to know anything about art. You just need $450 million. So that was the audience that Christie's was aiming at, was the people who wanted to own a $450 million painting, and that is who they got, and that was why they put it in the contemporary sale, as opposed to the old master sale where people are going to say, oh, you know, the face is not well painted and that's kind of what the important part is in a portrait yeah um i mean the so the interesting thing is i mean there's a lot of interesting things about this painting but the the thing which is fascinating to me is that it's seller um and dan is going to tell me how to pronounce this chat because he has too many v's in his name and i don't quite it's dimitri wait what okay dimitri rebolovlev and um he sold the painting basically because he got ripped off. Um, the painting was sold in 2013 by Sotheby's, interestingly enough, the great Christie's competitor, for $80 million. That gives you an idea of how completely random the pricing is on this kind of thing because yeah. 
four years ago, it was, it was mm-hmm. worth $80 million. Sotheby's sells it in a private sale to this guy called Yves Bouvier in 2013 for $80 million. Bouvier then turns around and flips it to Dmitry Rybolovlev $127.5 million. Um, Bouvier thinks that, sorry, Ryoblovlev thinks that Bouvier has just taken a small commission. It turns out that he's taken like a $50 million commission. And when Dmitry Rybolovlev finds out that Bouvier has made $50 million on this, he's like, you completely ripped me off. I've been ripped off. I bought an $80 million painting for $130 million. I can't believe it. I like the art world is poisonous and evil and I'm selling all of my art. What? And that, he had spent like $2 billion on art and just basically dumped the whole thing. He's like, I'm sick of this whole art business. I'm over it. And most of the art that he sold, he sold at a loss. And hmm. he probably entirely expected that he would be selling this Leonardo at a loss as well, because it was an $80 million painting, which he'd bought for $130 million. And then weirdly, improbably, like, he winds up probably making more on this one art sale than like virtually anyone else has ever made in the history of art collecting. It just seems to me like there's an entire industry of, it's just amazing. Like essentially billionaires sit around listening to people who have every incentive to lie to them about Mm -hmm. the value of a painting Um, from the people, the galleries who are hawking it to the experts who all, you know, they're all part of this community. Like just, trying to pump up the value of a work and then you the only check on that you essentially have it seems to me is critics who are like this is a shit painting waving their hands yeah, and the, the billionaires are yeah, like yeah no the critics well, have had no, no influence on no, valuations that, that, but I feel yeah, like I know they, it's, a, it's amazing to me they're the only people who have some incentive to to play devil's or not even devil's advocate to to try to be some check on a system that otherwise right, is but just what also, be pumping well, the value but what also is somewhat of a check because again it's, it's a very small world it's a very small community and if you get screwed by someone other people are going to know that. And, and again, this is not a large community where you can do this multiple times and you know get away with it. Well, so I, I mean, that's a, that is I, 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 it's a, a small extent. world, but it's a pretty opaque world. Um, there are dubious actors who keep on going for decades and it's getting worse in many ways. Um, one of the more scandalous things that has only recently started to happen is in the world of authentication. Obviously, if you're going to try and sell a Leonardo as a Leonardo, you need to have a whole bunch of um, learned types authenticating it as such. Um, And increasingly, what you find is that the authenticators, instead of just being paid a fee for for their authentication works, are being paid a percentage of the sale proceeds, yeah, which is obviously just deeply corrupt. And this is exactly what I'm talking about, is that all the incentives point one way, which is to somehow convince a a billionaire in, be it Russia or China or or wherever, Mm -hmm. that the, like restoration job <laughs> that took off it's the beard awesome. is worth 450 right. million dollars it's just it's bizarre to me but ultimately you know it's it's a victimless crime you know the the I guy the right. guy who spent 450 million dollars on a painting does now own a 450 million dollar painting and he's very proud of that fact and believe for him the amount of wealth in the world hasn't changed the amount of inequality in the world hasn't changed and if a bunch of billionaires want to do these stupid trades between each other like I mean, can, can, yeah, I, can yeah. I can i get a little bit philosophical here for a moment and you can shoot me down but i feel like there is a victim in the sense that like 
so much of art history now is basically being dictated by the taste of billionaires. It always has been to some extent, but like art it's, history. Or, no, yeah, I, I, so. I think, yeah, the tastes of, you know, well, the yeah tastes of people art buying itself art. has yeah. always been yeah. like, you, you know, the kind of purview of the wealthy. Who, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you funded can, artists. Rich yeah. people have always funded yeah. art. But. You can go back to the Medici's like yeah. the, the, the money in art has always come from rich people. I and it seems I like, partially it, I agree. Feel like stupid money now is like is dictating a lot of, of what a, a lot of just like what will go down as historically important art. It's, no, but you see, I think that's that's yeah. you're you're entirely wrong about that. You seem to think that just because something sells for a lot of money, that makes it more likely to go down as a historically important piece of art. And there's actually not a huge amount of evidence for that. Well, I, that I I I do certainly agree with, but I do think when you're talking about. Um, Artists who are getting commission or artists who are really getting a lot of sales, which is then going to most likely be the art that just is around for later art historians to look at, is going to be influenced by the taste of the people who are buying the art. So, okay, so there's this, there was this period in the 20th century, and we're getting a little bit off Leonardo here, but there was this period in in the 20th century, which wasn't very long. It basically was a short post war period. Um, I would say from like the 50s through the early 80s, perhaps. When the market sucked. When um, there was this kind of high ideal of museum level scholarship and a bunch of relatively low paid, dispassionate art historians at museums were sort of selecting the canon and were exhibiting works based on their quality alone. And this was the the great ideal. And then, you know, pretty soon, eventually what happened was that the boards of the museums wound up getting filled by the local billionaire class. And the local billionaire class on the board started persuading the museum to buy the kind of art that they liked. And pretty soon the museum started buying the kind of art that the billionaires on the board liked. And then you got what you're talking about, that the you know, the celebrated, mostly contemporary artists, um, you know, start being the the artists who billionaires like. And, you know, I don't love that. I think it probably was better when it was more like lower paid art historians deciding what to exhibit. Um, But ultimately, I think that Anna is right, that twas ever thus. And if you go back in the history of art, even to Leonardo, you know, it, he was a successful painter because he was supported by the billionaires of his day. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. 
Okay, let's talk about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for which I'm just going to hand this entire thing over to Jordan because he cares about what goes on in Washington. Yeah, so for the last several years, basically since it was born, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is the agency, it's pretty much the only agency that's tasked with making sure you don't get ripped off by banks or payday lenders or student loan uh, servicers, things you know, things along those lines, um, has been read, led by Richard Cordray. He's a former attorney general of Ohio, is known as a fierce consumer advocate before he got the job and has been since. Uh, I, I mean, like, can I just jump in and say, like, in terms of sort of temperament and mean, um, boring as hell. The the word fierce doesn't spring to mind. Yeah, he's uh, he's a yeah he's a. Um, I've seen a lot of speeches by Richard Cordray, yeah. and I have fallen asleep in nearly all okay, of them. Yeah, Although he is despised by a lot of very wealthy people. <laughs> the the interesting thing about Richard Cordray is that everyone expected that the first head of the CFPB would be Elizabeth Warren. And the I, entire. Yep entity was her idea mm-hmm. and then i it was some she kind got, of she, got blocked. she she couldn't get confirmed she um, didn't get confirmed yeah I mean, so she got it off the ground like but it, and the, that was probably one of the republican party's biggest tactical errors of like recent years because she ended up a senator as a result of that instead of running this agency um but yeah so he ended up taking the job and he's probably been just as aggressive as Elizabeth Warren would have been at the head of it. And he made a lot of enemies in finance in the Republican Party. And uh, the Republicans came to really absolutely despise the CFPB. They've uh, So, I mean, okay, let me just, again, like go slowly through this, because you're making it sound like the Republicans hate Cordray and the CFPB because of what he did. And it seems to me that they hated Cordray, they, they hated the CFPB before it ever existed, oh, absolutely. they were universally opposed to it as an idea in the Dodd-Frank bill. And the degree of their hatred and opposition um, does not, to me, seem to be a function of what Richard Cordray did or didn't do. and just seems to be a very deep-seated philosophical, like, this place should not exist thing. I agree, but I think that uh, his aggressiveness made them hate it all that much more. I mean, if someone a little bit more... If somebody had come in and run it in a more tentative manner, they probably still would have disliked it. But I don't think the sheer rage you see at this agency uh, would have been you wouldn't have seen the same same level of rage at it um, where I mean, they've again, they've they've introduced many bills to try and eliminate the whole thing. There's been a longstanding attempt to change its structure, essentially to neuter it. Um, but so I do want to get to the news, uh, which is that Cordray is stepping down. He's at the end of the month. He's given up. And people assume he's probably going to go run for governor of Ohio, which might not be the worst idea in 2018, because looking like it'll probably be a pretty good time for a Democrat to run for governor anywhere, as it will be anytime. Um, and so, you know, it's up to Donald Trump, who, of course, ran a predatory uh, <laughs> uni- university? Yeah, uh, for-profit, quote, university, uh, among other scams, to pick a new director. And it looks like um, it was, it's was it been reported that the acting director will be none other than Mick Mulvaney, um, who you may know as Donald Trump's budget director. This is the guy who, I mean, he's just like kind of a, a shambling individual. He's just like, he's the one who 
tried to defend a bunch of budget cuts for like old, for like that would have like gotten rid of funding for Meals on Wheels by saying Meals on Wheels doesn't work. Uh, like and then like when he had a chance, old people to, don't get food. Yeah, like when he like had a when he like kind of tried to walk. He even got like an opportunity to walk that back and like kind of double down. Um, and or like you know he tried to he he spent a lot of time trying to redefine the word compassion. Like that was like a project of his. Like saying it's compassionate that we're making all these budget cuts and that never really flew. Um, and he's just a really I mean. In general, he's a really doctrinaire conservative. He's very much against consumer protections. He has co-sponsored bills to eliminate the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He has um, he has said like in hearings, I do not think this. Ex- I don't like that it exists. <laughs> like, Which know? seems like most of the people that are appointed to head agencies in the Trump administration. And that's sort of that's sort of it. So it feels like we're at the point now where. Um, you know, you're going to start seeing the it's not clear if he's going to be in charge of this agency long term. Again, he's being appointed as the interim director. Um, and last I saw, they're going to do it in such a way that he can still also be budget director. So he'll sort of be like part timing it. So what I think this signals is, is sort of, yeah, like you're saying, Felix, whether the CFPB, they're going to start sort of taking it apart from the inside. So my question is, yeah. Is it just some kind of miracle that the CFPB has managed to last a year under Trump? And if you have a Republican-dominated government, then there's really no reason to believe that the CFPB will ever um, really even exist in a meaningful way, let alone be effective. I mean, or or is there a case to be made that this is some kind of unusual or unexpected or uh, i don't know how to put this but like is this something we should have all seen coming right? uh, yeah i mean, yeah, I mean like given given how given that i don't know 60 percent of korea ambassadors have now left the state department you know given that the trump administration's stated aim of dis, you know dismantling um this the state in many ways seems to be moving on a pace everywhere else it's i'm just kind of astonished that the cfpb lasted this long well, what was interesting is that about the cfpb is that one of the things republicans didn't like about it was they thought that the head of it wasn't accountable because they would outlast a president and the president couldn't easily remove the head of that, the CFPB. That, that's the thing so i mean cordray's term was supposed to end i think in the middle of next year he's leaving a bit early and again that's probably because he wants to set the stage for some sort of other for political run but um, it, this agency was designed to be as independent as possible. It was built with with the thought in mind that a Republican might try to take it apart. It was housed within the Federal Reserve, so its budget couldn't be attacked. Instead of, um, you know, it was given a single uh, it was given a single director who was appointed to a, like a five year term or, or uh, off that my head that would so it wasn't going to change with with each administration necessarily. Um, who could only be removed for cause. There were, you know, court challenges about whether or not that was even mm-hmm. constitutional. But it was meant to be something that was protected in many ways. The problem at the irony of that is whoever Trump appoints is also going right. to be protected. Um, you know, so it, you can it kind of cuts both ways. Now you can you have a, a this is the irony of all the uh, of all the effort that, that the Democrats and Elizabeth Warren and the people who envisioned this thing may all the effort they put in to um, make it effective and powerful and independent will now possibly um, also make it toothless in the future. 
Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Anna, um, tell me about Robert Mugabe. Is he president of Zimbabwe? That's a good question. (laughs) So as I'm sure many of you have noticed over the past week, there were tanks moving through Harare as uh, the Robert Mugabe was put under house arrest by the military in Zimbabwe in what they have called totally not a coup. <laughs> Even though... When you have to say it's not a coup, it's a coup. It's a coup. <laughs> it's a yeah, coup. And, and, and for all of you who do not know, Robert Mugabe has been the head of Zimbabwe since independence for 37 years, a country that he has ruled as a ruthless autocrat, has completely destroyed the economy. It has a 95% unemployment rate, which is like, I didn't even know that was possible. Yes. And and again, at one point, I think in 2008, the inflation rate was 230 million percent. Well, at what point does the unemployment rate just not become even like a useful measure of the economy? Because I assume at that point, it just means that people live in the informal economy. Like it's just like there's no official employment. Like it's just you it's it's a different standard you have to judge by. Like it's you can't even you can't even use a modern metric to measure what goes on. Yeah. And I think that's exactly it's exactly right. And and again, and it's it is surprising, though, because, again, you obviously do still have some, you know, state owned enterprises and state workers that are filled with cronies. But again, those are, I think, the only people who are officially employed in Zimbabwe. And and so Zimbabwe has been brought to its economic knees by Robert Mugabe. And Mugabe is getting old. He's like in his late 80s. 93. 93. His wife, though, is his quite a bit younger than him. second wife, yes. Grace. Well, she, yeah, she's yeah, a little bit younger than him. 40 years younger and, than him. <laughs> and it looks like the coup while obviously he's the president so if you're going to have a coup you're going to wind up with the president under house arrest i mean the reason why maybe it's not a coup or the 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 counter narrative here was that the real target was grace rather than robert it certainly was and it was the the faction so right now you have a schism in zanu pf which is the the party of uh, mugabe where you have the war veterans which are kind of the old guard who were like the the people who fought against white minority rule and when it was Rhodesia. We make- we remember 1979 yes. and like the what percentage of the Zimbabwean pop population was even alive oh, in 1979 yeah. is, is tiny. Exactly. And, and then you have this like G40, which is this kind of generation 40, this kind of newer, younger wing of the party. The, the issue I have with a lot of the coverage of this non-coup coup is that both sides of this are pretty awful. So, I mean, Grace yeah. Mugabe is incredibly corrupt. She's called Gucci Grace because she has this incredibly lavish lifestyle, as do her sons. You can check out their Instagram. Um, but if you look at Monangagwa, who was the VP and he's held a number of other positions, who was ousted, which is, I think, really was the catalyst of this. He is a, a pretty harsh figure as well. And, and I So, OK, so yeah. to, to be clear, what happened is that the Grace Mugabe faction basically kicks out the old guard vice president who remembers 1979 and was this kind of freedom fighter back in the day and then his revenge is 
a military coup. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the, the key is that Grace Mugabe did not, in fact, have a faction. She had her relationship with Mugabe. No, she, she, she has support. The, the, the yeah. Youth League supports they're, her. They're, I mean, no, there's definitely part I, of the party. I guess they're, they're jailing her. people, which yeah, means that she they, has allies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there have to be allies to jail. And so again, I guess it's not just, yeah, and yeah. it's not just her as well. I mean, it's the idea yeah. of this kind of lineage of Mugabe as, as opposed to the kind of old school, again, war veteran. Yeah. Uh, but then, and then there's a whole third leg to the stool the like you, you can well i mean i wouldn't necessarily call it the opposition because mugabe has been pretty good at sort of you know taking all of the teeth out of any potential sounding pf opposition but what you do have is that while you have this big fight within the zanu pf which is you know we've had single party rule since 1979 um and for most of those years, the the population of Zimbabwe has lived to a greater or lesser extent in fear of the Mugabe regime. As the ZANU-PF starts showing cracks, um, anecdotally, what the, the consequence of that is that the broad population is starting to feel that maybe, just maybe, they can start voicing ap- opposition to the ZANU PF to like single party rule. See, yeah. in theory, I, I would like to think that, but again, because you do have like um, like Morgan Svengarai, and you do have actually a seven party opposition coalition that is kind of formed. But my fear is that if you're going to have this part of ZANU PF come in and essentially take out the person who's been the leader of their party for this long, do we? They've already said that we may not even have elections now next yeah. year. Do we really think they're going to allow any type of opposition yeah. to come in? I no, really and, also... and no, and I, I'm not actually talking about opposition here. I'm, I'm not talking about political opposition. I'm not talking about elections. I'm not talking about any kind of replacing of the ZANU-PF by some other regime. I'm just saying that the population, when it starts, you know, which has been living in fear and hasn't been sort of publicly grumbling about their plight might start publicly grumbling I, I about that. Extent, although, that's not true. They have been. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a long-standing tradition of, of of newspapers in Zimbabwe that have actually been somewhat critical. Um, I mean, they also well, get shut down. And they're, they're, <laughs> I mean, like, there's, I mean, they it's, it's not, yeah, it's not as if, it's not as if people don't grumble. I mean, they've been talking about, you know, WhatsApp is actually really important there, for instance. They've been talking about how um, there's a joke going around all the WhatsApp mess, all the WhatsApp threads in Zimbabwe, which is a, a military coup is better than a bedroom coup. <laughs> That's like the joke right now, because they'd rather have the strong man come in and take over country than the crazy wife. Like right. that is that is apparently sort of. They, yes, there was also the joke that power cannot be sexually transmitted. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so it's like so but I, I don't think I, I don't think this really changes much in that respect what it, it changes is now instead of having again Mugabe create a sort of a, a family uh, dictator uh, you know passing on power through his family you have the former head of the intelligence service right. um, who was known to take part in some of the most or possibly he is accused of directing some of the most brutal crackdowns against yes. ethnic minorities in uh, Zimbabwe possibly ascending to become head of state and if anything, this guy seems a lot more uh, ruthless and effective than the somewhat doddering 93-year-old long-term dictator who is sort of on his last legs. I, I, if I, I think you could be heading for an even darker period. And the fact, you know, the fact is the reason they are saying this is not a coup 
um, that they're insisting on it is because if they were to say this is a coup, it would trigger all sorts of possible sanctions from the international community. The U.S., for instance, is not allowed to give any aid to Zimbabwe. Right. I'm not quite sure how much aid they get currently, but also could create yeah, problems in the African Union. The, the point is they're the, doing the, this the, in right. such yeah, a exactly. way well, because they to want maintain to... international support. Of course, because oh, oh, the idea and... is that once you get someone in who's not Mugabe, even if he's from ZANU-PF, they think then they're more likely to get international aid in. Yeah, and, but and that's... Just, let but me I just actually, be, yeah. can, and to be very clear about this, when people talk about international... There's only one yes. country which counts, and that's South Africa. Yes. Like, you know, South Africa is... So Zimbabwe is a small landlocked country with a very long land border with South Africa, and South Africa is this massive, much richer country to the south, which has dominated the Zimbabwean economy since even before it was Zimbabwe, since even when it was in the, you know, Rhodesia. Yeah. Well, there's also China and there's, there have been reports that they've, there are reports that the military faction or that the military faction that is now executing this coup went ahead and talked to both South African leaders and Chinese leaders yeah, beforehand and actually- to basically get permission. So they are doing this in such a way that a extremely uh, ruthless and uh, violent or, allegedly extremely violent uh, autocrat in waiting is going to be ascending to power with support from the main international backers uh, uh, from all the country's major international backers. I think you could be heading to an even darker period uh, for for this country. At least that's how it looks to me. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the you you have had Chinese influence now there for a a decent period of time, particularly in terms of the tobacco market, where you've actually that's been one of the only bright spots at all that they had in their economy. But And this is one of the things that I, both in terms of violent crackdowns, it's very disturbing, but also to me, this idea of no real economic reforms. I I think it's very unlikely that we're going to see anything that's going to actually benefit the population. He's like made, he's waved his hands a little bit about, uh, like about, oh, they'll say, invite investment. You know what what we have had? Like, you know, a little bit like the crack epidemic kind of just burned itself out. Um, the hyperinflation burned itself out in Zimbabwe <laughs> to the point at which the they Zimbabwean the dollar. dollar no longer exists. Right. It's basically completely dollarized at, at this point. And, and by moving to the U.S. dollar, which they did out of necessity and just because... They ran out of zeros. They ran out of, like... The like, they, they, they couldn't even afford to pay the banknote printers mm-hmm. to print the banknotes anymore. Um you know, that in, its, in and of itself is an economic reform. Yeah, somewhat. But again, even and even now you have essentially a three-part system where you have dollars, you have these bonds that were issued that in theory are supposed to be exchanged for dollars, but it's not perfect. Then you also have this card you can pay with as a, a separate system. So again, in, in that any it is. It is a bit crazy. The most expensive Bitcoin in the world is always yes. the Bitcoin on the Zimbabwean yep. exchange. $13,000. <laughs> there, there's a weird arbitrage there, and I'm not quite sure why it doesn't go away, but it probably has something to do with the ability or lack thereof to... You can't get money out of the country. I mean, that, that's the other issue. Like, yeah. I mean, for almost anyone, unless you are, again, like <laughs> very close to Mugabe, it's like the equivalent of maybe... Tw- it's a very low amount of money that you can take out each day. So you have people like sleeping outside of banks. And right now, they're also they can't get cash. There were some reports that they were paying people in food, and then they were running out of cash to pay for food. I mean, this is again, it's it sounds like my my personal favorite country, Venezuela. Again, a very similar dynamic that we're seeing play out, which is not surprising. And I also think it's interesting 
to watch this because this is actually very similar to what people have suggested could happen in Venezuela if Chavis if Chavismo was at, was to actually go under. It would be because the military would step up, but it doesn't mean that you would then have this wonderful flowering of liberal democracy. You're you're having a military dictatorship. Yeah, and and let's not forget that. The first attempt by Hugo Chavez to take over power in Venezuela was in the form of a military yeah. coup. So, like these things all cohere. Okay, so the but the um the bottom line in here is that things are going to get worse before they get worse. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the bottom line, Felix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is this is I I don't think it, this is quite the somewhat positive story that I feel like you see in a lot of news outlets right now. Okay, let's have a numbers round. Uh, Jordan, you have a closed laptop, so you're going to have to do this one off the top of your head. Yeah, 70 million. It's how much uh, BuzzFeed apparently missed its revenue target by, and it's going to probably delay its uh, IPO until the 4th of never. Um, So, uh, you know, a bunch of other digital media companies are having issues hitting revenue targets. Vice is in trouble, apparently. there, There was a whole list of Mashable got sold for like, uh, you know, uh, some pennies and whatever the, the buyer could find in his fridge. Uh, $50 million. <laughs> but the interesting thing about $50 million is that it is the exact same amount pretty much as the amount of VC funding yeah. that Mashable has raised. So what that means is that the VC funders will get back 1x their investment and mm-hmm. everyone else who has common stock gets, gets nothing. Yeah, exactly. It's... It's not good. And the bottom line is that um, you had a surge of digital media companies a few years ago or a rise of digital media companies a few years ago that were all going for scale and were going to try and make money off advertising um, and take advantage of social media. And they learned how to thrive on those plat- you know, on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. And in the end, it turns out they are fighting for the scraps of the advertising market against an advertising duopoly, that is Google and Facebook. And no one is figuring out how to win that war. And I don't think it can be won. I think it's just we're looking at a point where, you know, some of these some of these companies might find a way to uh, hit a sort of baseline profitability with if they stop trying to grow too much. Maybe I, I don't have a ton of insight there, but it just seems like um, advertising as a model is it, it as long as you're facing off against the tech titans, it's, it seems doomed to me. So, which which is another way of saying go to slate.com slash money plus, <laughs> give us your <laughs> slate plus memberships, and you can listen to even more. This was not that was not analysis. my intention. <laughs> that, like this is just my this is just my genuinely yes. being really pessimistic about where things are headed on this front. Anna, uh, minus twelve cents. Uh, specifically 12 cents a share, which is the GE dividend after it was cut in half for the only the second time since the Great Depression. This is Flannery, some John Flannery, yes. is it? Yes. Yeah, the new CEO of GE who, um, who's, who's the caricature is kind of a green eye shades guy. He, he's not, he's not, he doesn't really believe in culture. He just believes in mathematics. Yeah. And he's like, well, we can have more money if we cut our dividend. Right. Which is true. <laughs> it's in fact, it probably will save them like $4 billion. <laughs> so there's that. But yeah, but it's, it's interesting. It's interesting just because like GE is known as one of those like stocks that if you're a, you know, income investor, you kind of rely on. And so, so yeah, let this be a lesson to anyone who buys stocks on their dividend yield. <laughs> Dividends can be cut. Yes, it's true. It's not a coupon. 
My number is 29. This is a special Kathy O'Neill number because okay. you know, um, we love Kathy. So Bjorn Borg okay. is not just a tennis player. He's also an extremely fashionable man. Bjornborg is also a Swedish company. Oh. There is a Swedish company <laughs> called, called Bjornborg, which was founded by Bjornborg oh, and God. has... Um, it would be really funny if it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really into having healthy, fit, and uh, uh, workforce. Amazing specimens like Bjornborg. <laughs> exactly. And so in its annual report, in its annual financial report, they disclose this thing called the average biological age of the workforce. Oh no, I hate this shit. I and we've talked about how much I hate this shit at so, length. So oh, the average God. the average age of the workforce at Bjornborg is 32. No. And bad. the average biological age of the workforce is 29. Oh my uh, god, this is like weird <laughs> eugenic shit gone yeah. corporate. No, no. I don't no. know if you've ever been at a company where like you get like part of your premium reduced if you get these like go on this yeah, health absolutely. program and then you're at work and they're like measuring your waist oh. and you're just like this seems wrong it's, everything about this seems wrong it's so creepy yeah. it's so of our like future corporate totalitarian like dystopia this is like that these freaking company health programs are going to be one step in that direction i swear yeah bad bjornberg bad bjorn <laughs> Yeah. What's your biological age, My bi- Jordan? I once got told by a doctor I have the back of a 55-year-old man. So I'm going to go with that. That was about five years ago. So I guess about And we were 60. discussing bad joints, apparently. Oh, yeah. Oh, we, I could go on at length about this. Yeah. I mean, Jordan is-, is We should have the physical become... therapy edition of Slate Money where we just talk about- where Jordan just complains we, about uh, So if you listen to Slate Plus today, you'll get to listen to Jordan like complaining about his joints. Yeah. It's like- if, Which like next if, week, you'll listen to Jordan complaining about his neighbors. Like, Slate if, Plus is just going to be Jordan complaining about like, I'm an old Jew who complains about things. I was about to say, if you're like, if you miss your grandpa, your Jewish grandpa or never had one, I am happy to sum in that role. Um, We will have a Slate Plus uh, segment today, which um, you get to find out what it's about if you listen to Slate Plus. Other than that, if you don't listen to Slate Plus, thank you for listening to this version of the show. Do leave us a voicemail for the call-in show. That number is 347-960-6314 or email us at slatemoney at slate.com. Also listen to Hang Up and Listen, which is hosted by Josh Levin and Stefan Fatsis. Stefan Fatsis being a very good Scrabble player. Um, he, This is a podcast which comes out on Monday afternoons and talks about many sports, not just Scrabble. Um, I know nothing about sports, but I learn about sports by listening to Hang Up and Listen. Um Anyway, thank you to Dan Trader for producing, and we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. The best things in life are free, but you can.